Well, as you know, I've been on vacation for two weeks, and during that time, Mark filled the pulpit. You know, having known Mark for 30 years, I had no qualms about entrusting to him the responsibility of preaching in my absence. You know, as is the case with every part of the body, God has gifted us differently in some areas, but there's no doubt that Mark and I are on the same page when it comes to ministry. I look forward to listening to Mark's sermons, and I did so to learn from him, not to make sure that he wasn't leading you astray or stabbing me in the back. <laughs> but what if another preacher had been invited to fill the pulpit while I was gone, and he told you that I was leading you astray, that I was teaching false doctrine, distorting the scriptures and introducing unbiblical concepts in our church, that my motives were at best questionable, and I was just out to make a name for myself and to make a good living. You know, how would you respond to that? Well, some might say, I knew it. There was always something about him I didn't like. Others might say, oh, not, not Rick. He's a nice guy. You know, I remember when he came to visit me in the hospital. Hopefully, some would say, well, let's check it out. Let's examine his ministry among us and see if it squares with Scripture. Well, in a small way, that's a picture of what had happened in Corinth to the Apostle Paul. He had established the church there and spent 18 months getting it on its feet. He then left to continue on his missionary journeys. It wasn't long, however, before a band of men from Jerusalem hit town and began making false accusations about Paul. Apparently, they accused him of not really being an apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12. They charged that he was preaching false doctrine disregarding the law and preaching some watered-down liberal gospel of license. They accused him of being a moral coward, a guy who wrote tough-sounding letters, but who would back down when confronted face-to-face. -face. They even went so far as to question his relationship to the Lord. And we get a, a vague picture of this situation in the first few verses of our text this morning. But again, we're hearing only one side of the conversation, so we've got to try to piece together the total picture. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, first part of verse 7, where Paul begins by saying, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. The Corinthians were accepting at face value what some were saying without looking beneath the surface of it. If they wanted to know the truth, Paul intimates, they would have to carefully examine what they were being told and should think about the implications of believing it. He continues on in the remainder of verse 7. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, 
so also are we. Reading between the lines a bit, it becomes apparent some were saying that Paul didn't belong to Christ, that he wasn't even a Christian. Whether they were suggesting he was still a Jew or what, Paul responds by encouraging the Corinthians to look at themselves. If they were Christians, they could certainly see that he was one as well because he's the one who led them to Christ. The charge was ridiculous, but some apparently believed it. He goes on in verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. Here I think he asserts that the Lord had given him his authority. And he had used that authority to build them up. He was not like some who were apparently setting themselves up as authorities and using that authority to tear down, attempting to destroy all that Paul and, and his associates had established in Corinth. And even if he should boast a bit about what Christ had given to them and had accomplished through them, his boast would not be put to shame. They knew it was true. Because he adds in verse 9, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. He wasn't trying to terrify them by writing of his authority. In fact, he was keeping his letters subdued because they didn't, he didn't want to add fuel to the fire. He continues in verse 10, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. He was holding back, but it wasn't because he was weak, and they would certainly discover that to be the case when he got there. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. I think it's obvious what's going on in Corinth. Paul was under attack. And needless to say, he, he was disturbed about it. But how, how should he respond? You know, how would you handle it if someone questioned your relationship to the Lord and your involvement in the church? How should I handle it if my ministry came under attack. I guess the bigger question is simply, how do you evaluate any ministry to determine whether or not it's of the Lord? Well, of course, Paul goes on to give us some excellent guidelines to follow. He gives us some questions to ask when evaluating a ministry. And he used them to evaluate his ministry we can use them to judge our ministry as well. And I believe we should use them to judge any ministry before we begin supporting it. Paul began by refusing to do what many ministries feel they must do to justify their worth. He refused to compare his ministry with the ministry of others. 
And that perhaps should be the first thing we look for when evaluating the ministry. Is it always comparing? For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Paul refused to get into the numbers game. He refused to lower himself to the tactic of trying to evaluate his ministry by comparing it to someone else's. That, Paul said, is without understanding. It's really stupid. You know, you can always find someone against whom you will look good or bad. What does that prove? If you're doing what God wants you to do, it doesn't matter how it stacks up against anyone else's ministry. You know, God may want you to labor for 20 years to lead one chosen vessel to him. He may give you the ministry of compassion, showing compassion to an invalid for the rest of your life. He may give you the ministry of rooting out error in a congregation and leading it to make a few blessed subtractions. He may give you the ministry of leading masses to him in great evangelistic campaigns. How do you measure one by the other? You can't. And if you find a ministry that is always comparing itself to the ministry of others, you better beware. If you're always hearing how much better one church is than another down the street, you better check out what's really going on in both churches. If you're barraged by literature telling you how much more your dollar will do for the Lord in X ministry as opposed to Y ministry, you better become a little suspect. If someone is constantly trying to defend his ministry by quoting figures, drawing graphs, and presenting testimonies he's compiled, I think your first assumption should be that he is without understanding. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't be presented with the need a ministry is trying to fulfill, nor is it wrong for you to be told what a ministry is accomplishing. If someone is always comparing his ministry to someone else's, and of course, always looking good by comparison, you better take a good look beneath the surface. Next, Paul raises the question, who initiated the ministry? He says, but we will not boast beyond our measure but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Paul speaks about his measure, a measure of the sphere that God apportioned to him. What's he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about what the Lord had given to him, the ministry the Lord had opened up for him. He wouldn't boast beyond his measure. He wouldn't make claims about things outside the realm of the ministry Christ had given to him. I think he's indicating 
the sense God had opened the door for him to minister in Corinth, they should listen to what he had to say. And if we recap the events that led Paul to Corinth, it becomes obvious that the Lord did lead him there. His going to Corinth began with his Macedonian call. When he had a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia and help us. That call expanded his ministry into what is today Europe. So Paul made the jump from Asia and landed in Philippi. When he got there, he ended up in jail. When he got out of jail, he went to the next city, Thessalonica. Again, his preaching got him into trouble, and he was driven out of town. He went to the next city, Berea, and caused a riot. He had to leave there by night and was taken to Athens, only 50 miles to the east of Corinth. While there, he preached on Mars Hill, but had a very limited response. So he went on to Corinth, alone and out of money. There he met a Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and started making tents with them. And from that circumstantial meeting arose the church in Corinth. The Lord had obviously led Paul to Corinth and had initiated his ministry there. That helped to validate Paul's right to be there and gave him a reason to boast about what the Lord did through him while there. And you know, I think that's an important aspect for us to examine when evaluating a ministry, ours or anyone else's. Did we force our way into a particular area of ministry or did God open the doors and lead us there? Now, I certainly wouldn't compare my call to Chatham with Paul's to Corinth. But I think God's hand was evident in leading us here. As you may know, Marilyn and I are from Springfield. And we met there while I was youth minister at Bun Park. I'll spare you the somewhat shocking details, but many of you know the story. After a preacher I had ministered with for several years left and moved to Kansas, a new preacher had a health issue that put me in the pulpit for several months. When he returned to the pulpit, I found I really missed preaching and began to question what I had thought was a lifetime call to youth ministry. When I shared that with the former preacher, he told me of a church in Washington, Kansas that was in need of a preacher. After preaching a trial sermon, it was obvious we had found a good fit, and I thought I would be there for a long ministry. Meanwhile, a fellow classmate and former youth minister at Southside was asked to see if a church could be established in Chatham. After 18 months, Chatham Christian Church was meeting in the old Dickie John building on the square, and Bob was ready to move on. The first two elders of the new church were Jim Sexton and Howard Wooters. And Howard had been an elder at Bun Park when I was there. 
When he called to see if I was interested in coming back to the Springfield area, things were going really well in Kansas, and I was hesitant to leave. But a new church in need of a preacher and close proximity to our parents and a chance for any future children to have a close relationship with their grandparents convinced us to come. 47 years later, we're still here. So I think God may have had a hand in getting us here. And I'm sure many of you have stories that give evidence to God's leading in your life and his direction to you to come be a part of this church and to minister here with us. You know, God's also been evident in directing us to the missions we've supported over the years. And just one story, I think, will bear that out. After paying off the mortgage on our building, the elders decided we should look for a mission to support with the funds that were now available. We were already supporting Jesse in Thailand, but hoped God would lead us to another foreign missionary in need of our help. I had met Theo at church camp a couple of years earlier, but had had little contact with him since. For some unknown reason, I decided to give him a call and see how he was doing. A call to the Windward Island School of Evangelism, where Rose and Theo were teaching, revealed that due to the lack of support, the government of St. Vincent was about to force them to leave. They quickly agreed to come under the oversight of our eldership, and we not only eventually encouraged them to relocate to Jamaica, but have been their primary supporting church for over 30 years. And we have many more stories that could be told, because over and over again, God has opened unexpected doors for us to get involved in a variety of missions and ministries. And he's used us to make a significant difference in the kingdom by simply being open to his leading and by being good stewards of the resources he has entrusted to us. I think our experiences illustrate how God can open doors and initiate areas of ministry without the need for a carefully crafted vision for the future. If he wants us somewhere and we'll just stay available, he'll get us there. I think that's something we should examine when evaluating a ministry. Is it obvious that the Lord initiated the ministry or did a self-proclaimed visionary force it upon the church? The next question to ask is closely related to that last one. Does it overextend itself? Paul goes on. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labor. Paul said he wasn't going beyond the area of ministry God had given to him by writing to the Corinthians. 
nor by expecting them to heed what he had to say. He wasn't forcing his way into another man's ministry, intimating that some were doing just that in Corinth. He wasn't overextending himself, trying to reach into areas God had not given to him. And that, I think, is something we must examine when evaluating a ministry. Some churches and even individual Christians get in over their heads working for the Lord. They feel they've got to do everything or it won't get done and neglect to give other parts of the body the opportunity to function as God intends them to function. I think this is especially evident in churches and organizations that are always expanding into new areas. And I think a very practical way to evaluate whether they are supposed to be there or not is whether they can afford to be there. There are far too many emergency appeals from organizations that have ventured out on faith only to find they can't pay the bills once they get there. I'm convinced God will assure provision for the ministries he wants us to pursue before we jump into them. Furthermore, I think we need to be careful that we aren't forcing our way into another man's ministry and thereby creating duplication and competition. We've got to be careful not to get into a ministry just because everybody else is doing it. In fact, if everyone else is doing it, there's probably no need for us to do it too. Now, that doesn't mean ministries shouldn't expand. In fact, as faith grows, ministries will no doubt expand without anyone trying to make them do so. I think that's indicated by what Paul says next. Does it expand by itself? He says, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in this sphere of another. Paul hoped that as the Corinthians grew in faith, they would partner with him as he went into other areas of ministry. He hoped that further growth would come out of his ministry in Corinth, that new doors of opportunity would open from within his ministry. And I think that's a legitimate hope. If a ministry is effectively doing what God wants it to do, chances are that God will expand that ministry. Not so it can move into areas that are already being met by others, but into new areas of ministry that God will initiate for it and through it, or by simply increasing its effectiveness in the ministry it already has. And I think that ministry will expand without anyone constantly pushing or pulling or promoting to cause it to grow. In fact, if it takes pushing or pulling or promoting to make something grow, how do you know what caused the growth if it does grow? Now, I'm convinced it's possible for a church to grow without the Lord's help if it works hard enough 
and does everything the books on organization, administration, promotion, and church growth tell it to do. And that scares me. Quite frankly, I do not want that kind of growth. I don't want the success of this ministry depending on my managerial skills. If it grows, I want it to do so because we're doing what God wants us to do. And even more importantly, because we are becoming what God wants us to become. Only then can we really bring glory to God. That's the last thing Paul notes in our text for this morning. Does it bring glory to God? But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. If we plan and organize and work and work and work and something succeeds, who usually gets the credit? We do. Now, we may say we want the glory to go to God, but all the while we'll probably be telling how we did it. Paul says that he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So even if God does lead you to plan and organize and work, before he does what he wants to do through you, don't keep talking about what you did. I think that's something we need to look at when examining a ministry. How much time does it spend talking about what it's doing for the Lord and patting itself on the back. Paul says the only commendation that really counts is the commendation we receive from the Lord. It shouldn't be necessary to publish glowing reports of what a ministry is doing to justify its existence or to gain support. That's not to say it's wrong to share with others what a ministry is doing so they can get involved in it, or be challenged by it to consider a similar ministry that God might open up for you. But if someone is always talking about what he's accomplishing for the Lord, he may very well be telling the truth. He may be the one who's accomplishing it. And you may want to take that into consideration before you support this ministry. This is quite a passage of scripture. It's pretty detailed. I think it's important. I think it prepares us to minister effectively as a local body and as a body that reaches out and seeks to be used wherever God leads. And I hope that this study will help us to continually evaluate ministries might seek our support. You know, we try very hard to, to uh, divide our money up. We try to send close to 25% of everything you give to missions. But we need to be aware of what the needs are. And sometimes those that we're supporting, they no longer need our support. We've had a big change with Jesse. We just found out that, that Andrew is is no longer going to be involved with uh, his ministry in Mexico. So we're looking 
we're thinking, we're praying. We need to try to discern what God wants us to do with the money you entrust to us. So this is very relevant. I think it's important. There's a body we understand how we got where we are and where we hope God will lead us in the future. Paul gives us, I think, the insight we need. He wants us to evaluate our ministry. And he wants us to, to, to look at us, not to, to enter into some kind of spiritual beauty contest to see who has the best-looking ministry around. That's not our concern. Our concern is not comparing ourselves with anyone else. Our concern is doing what God has called us to do. We don't have to impress anyone other than our Lord, and we don't do that by outshining anyone. We do that by simply trusting him and obeying him and by being what he wants us to be as individuals and as a church. If you've not committed yourself to trusting him and obeying him, I invite you, I encourage you to do so. And as we each do that, I trust as a church we'll be doing what God wants us to do as well. Let's thank him for what he's done and let's pray his continual guidance as we step into tomorrow together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the practical insight we get from the Apostle Paul. It's amazing that 2,000 years ago he faced the same struggles and the, the same controversies that plague the church today. And the answers are the same if we'll just get into your word and study it and listen to your spirit. Thank you for what you've done through Chatham Christian Church over the years. And I pray that we will discern your leading as we step into tomorrow. In Christ's name.